I, uh, I feel like I must make a comment um, about, uh, about uh, Ignatius's letter uh, to Polycarp uh, because there was maybe a little bit of confusion on one of the things he said about marriage. He said, um, you know, let the, let the wives uh, be satisfied both in flesh and in the spirit with their husbands. And, um, you know, that is probably not, um, in, in our context, in our culture, in our time, you know, you, when you're doing mar- premarital counseling with a couple, you probably don't, you probably don't want to quote that, that, uh, that, that epistle. So uh, it may not, may not go over as well as, uh, as maybe it did for, uh, for Ignatius. So um, <clears throat> I just needed to clear that up. No, these, the, 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 the guys are the same guys. So, and they've, they've, they've made these, these guys saints, right? So Saint and Ignatius. You'll see uh, <clears throat> in the States or maybe even uh, elsewhere, uh, churches named after some of these guys, you know. Um, so <clears throat> they definitely hold them in high standard and, 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 and have sainted them. So <clears throat> the, way that, um, the way that people would study as they went through the Middle Ages was um, they got away, and this is, a, this is a warning for pastors too, actually. They got away from reading original sources. So they, they would not, so if they wanted to read, let's say they wanted to read the letters uh, of Ignatius, they wouldn't go and read the letters of Ignatius. They would read somebody's commentary on the letters, who was someone's commentary of someone's commentary of someone's commentary on the letters, and they would never actually get to reading the sources of it. And um, that, uh, there's, a, there's a game that, that kids play in America. It's called Telephone. Have you ever played that? Where you get in a line. Everybody know what I'm talking about? It's kind of like that, where by the end of the line, it's all confused. You don't know what's going on. So <clears throat> one of the major movements of the Reformation that was happening in the culture of the time, not just with Martin Luther, uh, was a... Uh, was a movement of going back to the sources. So um, people were wanting to read original writings again. And that is where uh, Luther uh, strongly desired um, not to just read the, the theological books of the day, but to actually study the scriptures. And in studying the scriptures, he realized that what the scriptures said uh, was not... Um, was not in line with what the church was teaching in many different mat- massively important ways. So um, he, he began to try to, he, he, began, he first began to try to reform the church and bring them along with him in reading the sources, right? And he wanted to put the, the scriptures in the tongues of the people. And um, one of his major, uh, whenever he's uh, examined or debated with or anything like that, Luther uh, is and asked to recant any of any of his teachings. He constantly says, "Show me from the scriptures where I am wrong. Show me where the scriptures from from where uh, where I am wrong." And I believe it was on his debate with Johannes Eck, where um, Eck admits that um, well, they both admit big things, which just separates them big time. Luther admits that he is uh, after the tradition of John Huss, who was excommunicated or who was killed by the church. And uh, Johannes Eck admits that the church, uh, the church councils and the church uh, and the, the, what the Pope says, they are just as important as what the scripture says. So um, there you have the distinction. Uh, so these people hold these, uh, the Catholics hold these people in high regard. Uh, but you, 
you would not, um, and I'm speaking just from what I've experienced in the States, uh, you would not see very many Catholics reading, especially lay Catholics, reading, uh, reading these guys or studying them. Um, even, uh, you're even really having any in-depth study of the scriptures in, in my area. There was, um, my, my grandma was, was Catholic, um, although we think she, she was more Protestant than she led on. My grandpa was very Catholic. And um, at her funeral, my mom asked, uh, my mom asked the priest to read um, Isaiah 40. And um, uh, he, didn't know, he didn't know what Isaiah 40 was. It was very shocking uh, that he wouldn't know what that was. So, yeah, they, they hold them in high regard, but they, they probably don't know what they're saying. And so these, these teachings are, are um, the, one that is, the one that is curious is Augustine. Um, because in the Reformation, you had the Reformers quoting Augustine to contradict the, uh, the papacy. Then you had the papacy quoting Augustine to try to contradict the Reformers. And they both were just, it was just a, a struggle to try to claim Augustine. And, um, but if you read Augustine, I think you'll see that he is, uh, he is Protestant, even before, even though, even though that is anachronistic, right? Because uh, Protestant wasn't a thing then. So that's my best shot. Does that, does that help anyway? You'll get more on that in your Reformation church history of how did it go so wrong. Yep, that's very yeah, profound. Um, you know, in some ways, we are, we are, similar, we are similar to the early church um, being Protestants. Uh, because they were being accused of being newcomers, as you say, you know, you, you are just inventing things now. And um, the Jews would accuse the Christians of, of being newcomers, right? And, uh, and then the Christian, it, was upon, it, was, it was upon the Christians to prove that the Old Testament was teaching what they taught, what they believed, and was leading up to this. So um, that's why what Mar- Marcion did was so, uh, just so drastically tragic, where he, where he basically just admitted that, yeah, we are new, um, so we'll start our own thing. Um, but the faithfulness of the men uh, and who, who said, no, the Old, the Old Testament points to Christ, and, they, and the Old Testament is our Bible. Um, they were staunch on that and, uh, and rigorous, and they, they, they debated and fought and uh, you know, clung to the Old Testament uh, in spite of severe persecution. <clears throat> but yeah, yeah, yeah. One thing that um, has been striking to me is, um, you know, as uh, when you be- begin to pastor and, and minister, um, <clears throat> we get so caught up in like what uh, is happening in our culture. What's in What's kind of being stressed uh, in our time? Um, what uh, what is important to us, you know? And when we <clears throat> we can kind of get uh, <clears throat> there's a uh, there's a term that's called ethnocentrism, where you just get caught up in your own culture and you can't see other people's cultures. Well, uh, so one thing that can help someone who's struggling with ethnocentrism is to take them out of their culture and put them in another culture, so they can just see that people think differently, you know, and it, it and it can be very valuable. Uh, well, this is similar to that for the church, taking us out of how, what we think about church and, how, and our customs and how we do church, uh, which you know, could be helpful, could you know, not be so helpful. And what we stress is most important, right, for, for better or for worse, and taking us out of our 
uh, spiritual ethnocentrism and putting us into the context of these people, uh, a very, very different context than ours, and seeing how they ministered and preached and uh, walked by faith in God um, is just so valuable, so valuable. And it, it, you know, it, it minimizes some of the problems we might uh, emphasize, you know, um, when you see what, what Ignatius was up against, some of your uh, struggles might seem more petty, you know, and, and you'll, you'll be encouraged to persevere through them. Yeah, I remember um, I was meeting with somebody, um, and they were really struggling with, with uh, somebody had wronged them. And I told them that they needed to forgive that person, and they, they were struggling with that. And I said... Um, I said, you know, I said, uh, I said, when you look at someone like Ignatius or, uh, uh, you know, Polycarp or, or any, any, even some of the ones we look at today, <clears throat> and, and see how they struggled and how they were, uh, even, even in the face of death, painful death, they, uh, they still clung to God and, and didn't hold it against anybody. Not to mention what Jesus did and said, you know, when he was dying. <clears throat> And, it, it, and the, the guy goes, uh, yeah, that, that puts it into perspective. I said, yeah. I said, and it's not, you know, this, this is how we should think, you know. This is, um, just helps us, you know. Um, for me, there's two categories. There's scripture, and then there's non-scripture, right? And uh, the, the early fathers had that same category, right? Um, they, they considered the writings of the apostles, um, and, uh, and those that were influenced by the apostles and those that lasted, right, and were helpful to the church as being inspired by the Holy Spirit. So they, there was never any sort of debate uh, from them that they were writing the same things that Paul wrote, right? Even, even, uh, even Polycarp, when he writes to the Philippians, mentions Paul's letter and holds it in high esteem, right? If you listen to the things he said, you will have all things for life. And... Um, <clears throat> So uh, the question is, are they higher than other writings? And I would say that they are higher than other writings, but not because of their content, or not because of their human content, but because of how closely related to the scriptures they are and how near to them they were in proximity. So there's not, like a, there's not a middle category in my mind, but there's, there's good books, and then there's okay books, and then there's books that are not very helpful at all. And the, what makes a book good is how well it ex- explains and applies the scriptures, right? So these letters, because they are so close to the scriptures, and because they are written by men who, are, who were influenced and ministered to by the apostles, um, they, they can be considered as some of the best books we have, though they are still only books, does that make sense? Yeah. What's hard, what's hard to uh, differentiate there is when D.A. Carson writes a book, he's, he's influenced by Polycarp. So there is that, like, because we all rest on the shoulders of these guys. You know, you didn't know, you may have known some of these guys' names, but even, though, even if you didn't know any of these guys' names before we started talking yesterday, you already are being influenced by them you already are standing on their shoulders. Like, 
the, the, for what they have done for the church and how the church has progressed from their foundation, you are resting on their shoulders. Um, so, you know, it's hard to say is D.A. Carson or Polycarp, you know, between the two of them. Um, but what, what I think I would try to make clear is that um, what makes a book the most helpful and the most uh, good is how well does it explain and apply and, uh, and exegete the scriptures, right? And there's a lot of different ways, there's a lot of different things that can help you exegete the scriptures. One is knowing the context of the scriptures, right? The culture that the scriptures were written in. Well, these men, they knew the culture very well. It was, it was their culture, right? <clears throat> so they, they already have a huge, up, a huge advantage on their writings there. Um, they, they had met the apostles. They had been taught directly from the apostles. Uh, so there's a big advantage as well. Um, but I'm not, I'm not, I'm not going to, and I, just, I know it's probably not what you're saying, but I, I, don't, I don't want to make some sort of middle category between the scriptures and, uh, and the writings we have today. Um, I want to say that what is scripture is scripture and what is not scripture is not scripture. However, there are some books that are more helpful because they teach the scriptures more clearly or, or, and are closer, more closely related to the scriptures. Does that answer your question? Okay, all right. Yeah, so I, I, I don't want, because this is a stumbling block that the church fell into was holding the martyrs um, higher than just human beings, right? And uh, the martyrs did not, would not have wanted that, right? Um, <clears throat> they saw their, their, their sufferings as, as Christ, uh, uh, Christ filling up their sufferings, right? That Christ suffering for them. So they, they would not have wanted to be held in any sort of higher standard, right, um, for, for, being, for being martyrs. But, um, uh, but the church began to do that, um, um, began to, to, to do these things. And you can see how their writings became, uh, became elevated. Okay, let us discuss the letter to Diognetus. Um, so the letter to Diognetus was probably written... Around 130, something like that. Um, and uh, we don't know who wrote it. We don't know his name. His name was not Mathetes, okay? Uh, that he, was, he was saying he was the disciple of Christ, right? Or disciple of the apostles. <clears throat> um, so he's, he's, his name is not that. Um, uh, it could have been Barnabas. That's a possibility. Uh, but we just don't know. And there's no way to know. Um, <clears throat> what's, really, uh, what's really crazy um, about the letter to Diognetus is the way that it was discovered. Um, so, uh, <clears throat> let me see, where's the date? The... The, fort, the 13th century? Um, there was a uh, fish shop... Um, I think in in Rome, yeah. And um, this 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 scholar was at the shop, and he was going to make a purchase. Uh, he's going to buy some fish to take home uh, to eat. And um, and the, the 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 fish guy, whatever they're they're called, fishmonger. I don't know. Um, 
was, uh, was using these papers to wrap up the fish to, to, send, uh, to send with the customers. And, um, and as the guy was waiting in line, he looked at the stack of papers, and he looked at it, and he realized that one of them had, uh, had uh, some ancient writing on it. And so he picked it up, and he, and he found uh, what is the letter to Diognetus. Um, <clears throat> so he, uh, he said, I need to have this. And um, he, uh, he brought it with him and preserved it. And um, eventually, um, let's see. At some point, the manuscript discovered in the, oh, sorry, it was in Constantinople, fish shop, came into the hands of the German scholar Johannes Rucklin, the granduncle of the reformer, of the Lutheran reformer, Philip Melanchthon, and at least five copies were made. So do you guys know who Philip Melanchthon is? He was very, very close and good friends with Martin Luther. So uh, he, he preserved this document, made five copies of it. Um, well, his, his, uh, his granduncle, his granduncle did. But that's just incredible, right? I mean, we were this close to not having this document, right? And um, uh, it survived a fire, I think, even at some point. Uh, so, um, and why it is so, uh, so incredibly important is because <clears throat> um, this is what an uh, a English Baptist by the name of John Sutcliffe says. Uh, he was so impressed by the letter to Diognetus, which he wrongly supposed to have been written by Justin Martyr, that he translated it for the Biblical Magazine, a Calvinistic publication with a small circulation. He sent it to the editor of this periodical with the commendation that this second century work is one of the most valuable pieces of ecclesiology or ecclesiastical antiquity. So he looks at, he looks at all the writings we have, and he says that this letter is one of the most valuable letters we have. Um, Alexander Roberts says this, Altogether, the epistle is a gem of the purest ray, and while suggesting some difficulties as to interpretation and exposition, it is practically clear as to argument and intent. Mathetes is perhaps the first of the apologists. Which is maybe why uh, Sutcliffe attributes it to Justin Martyr. Okay, um, Mathetes was... Um, possibly a catechumen of Paul. Uh, he was most likely associated with one of the apostles. Um, he, uh, he could have been Clement of Rome or Clement of Apollos, uh, but we don't know, um, and not much else is really known by him. Um, <clears throat> he's writing to a man named Diognetus. who was a Roman philosopher um, and could have been the same Diognetus who was the tutor of Marcus Aurelius. So you remember Marcus Aurelius? Um, and, uh, of course, Diognetus was uh, very steeped in Greek philosophy and uh, paganism. And what the letter uh, seems to hint at is that there seems to be a correspondence Happening. So the letter to Diognetus does not seem to be the first contact that these men have had. It seems as though um, uh, uh, Diognetus has written something to Mathetes first uh, because he seems to have a list of questions 
that he wants to ask Mathetes, and these are some of the questions. How do Christians worship God? Who is the God in whom they trust? Why do they not fear death? What is this brotherly love they show towards each other? Why is Christianity a new religion and not much older? So these are questions that Justin has, has asked and answered, right? Uh, but this is just the questions that the culture, the pagan culture, the Roman culture, were, were having of Christians at the time, uh, these sorts of things. So uh, Diognetus uh, asked these things of Mathetes, and uh, Mathetes is very uh, willing uh, to write a letter back to him. <clears throat> and uh, what we have in it is just um, absolutely golden. Um, this is his introduction. Uh, since I see the most excellent Diognetus exceedingly desirous to learn the mode of worshiping God prevalent among the Christians. Uh, what does that sound like to you? Sounds like an intro to another book we have. Luke, yeah, doesn't it? Most excellent Diognetus, most excellent Theophilus, right? See, these men were very stooped in the apostles, I think. Um, <clears throat> Uh, the, the, the main question that Dionysus had is, is um, okay, so these Christians are not Jewish, okay? Uh, even though they, they, use the, they use the Old Testament as their scriptures, uh, what are they? If, so if they're not Jewish, you don't want them to be called Jewish. What are they, right? And, uh, and he says uh, that he is welcomed, he welcomes him and wants to talk about it. I cordially welcome this, thy desire, and I implore God, who enables us both to speak and to hear, to grant to me so to speak, that above all I may hear you have been edified, and to you so to hear, that I who speak to you um, may have no cause of regret uh, for doing so. So uh, <laughs> he's, 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 being a little, uh, he's being a little sharp here with him, right? Um, I implore God, who enables us both to speak and to hear, to grant me so to speak, that above all I may hear that you have been edified. So he says, I want to talk in a way that you will be edified. But, and to you, so to hear, that I who speak may have no cause of regret for having done so. So I want to talk in a way that you will understand it and be edified, but I want you to listen in a way that I will not regret talking. I love that. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> That's something you can tell, say before you preach. I want to preach in a way that you understand, and I want you to listen in a way that, you, that I do not regret speaking to you, right? That's, that's similar to the um, premarital counseling. You should not tell people that before your sermons. <clears throat> um, uh, the first thing he launches into is uh, a discussion on the vanity of idols, which is what we saw with Justin as well. But those who imagine that by means of blood and the smoke of sacrifices and burnt offerings, they offer sacrifices acceptable to him, and that by such honors they show him respect, these, by supposing that they can give anything to him who stands in need of nothing, appear to me in no respect to differ from those who studiously confer the same honor on things destitute of sense, and which therefore are unable to enjoy such honors. Uh, so that's a... That's a scathing review of the idol worship, right? Um, the, the, those who offer to God, right, thinking that it's acceptable to him, um, are supposing that they can give to God 
who stands in need of nothing, right? So one of the, one of the major uh, themes of the early fathers is that they felt as though they were continuously receiving from God, receiving grace, receiving revelation, receiving faith, receiving life, receiving a kingdom, all of these things, right? And uh, they stood in opposition to the idea that man can offer anything back to God. And he says that these idol worshipers are acting as though they can offer anything back to God who stands in need of nothing. And uh, they um, are destitute of sense. So they are empty-headed, right? They are uh, not very smart. Um, And he he goes on to say uh, that much more could be said about these idol worshipers. and, uh, and, but, but Mathetes says, and, and Mathetes is very blunt, okay? And um, he says, uh, I, I could go on and on about the idols, but if somebody has not been convinced as of yet, I do not wish to speak to them anymore. So he says, what I've already told you should convince you that idol worship is useless, and if you haven't been convinced of that, uh, there's no reason for me to keep writing. Um, so uh, he is... Uh, He's turned up, right? He's very, uh, he's not having it, right? Um, <clears throat> the Christians are not the Jews. So they are not like the idol worshipers, and they are not the Jews. Um, the Jews are against the idols, but they are not the same as the Christians. They err in their worship of God as he has revealed himself in redemptive history. So in some ways, the Jews are similar to the idol worshipers in that they are not choosing to worship God the way God has prescribed to be worshipped, right? The Gentiles offer to things that cannot consume as an act of madness. The Jews offer to God that which he doesn't need or want. Oh, I didn't have this quote in there. But those who imagine that by means of blood... Oh, I already I said that. Okay. I did do that one. Okay. So now, so the, the Christians are not the idol worshipers. The Christians are not the Jews. What are the Christians? Okay. And, and in here, I think we have uh, one of the most beautiful explanations of who Christians are from this time. And it's a little bit longer, but I want you to bear with me and read it with me here. I, I'll read it, but just, just follow along in your mind. For the Christians are distinguished from other men neither by country nor language, nor the customs which they observe. For they neither inhabit cities of their own or employ a particular form of speech, nor lead a life which is marked out by any singularity. The course of conduct which they follow has not been devised by any speculation or deliberation of inquisitive men. Nor do they, like some, proclaim themselves the advocates of any merely human doctrines, but inhabiting Greek as well as barbarian cities, according as the lot of each of them has been determined, and following the customs of, their, of the natives in respect to clothing, food, and the rest of the ordinary conduct, they display to us their wonderful and confessedly striking method of life. They dwell in their own countries, but simply as sojourners. As citizens, they share in all things with others, and yet endure all things as if foreigners. Every foreign land is to them as their native country, in every land of their birth as, their, as the land of strangers. They marry, as do all. They beget children, but they do not destroy, the fle- uh, they do not destroy fl- uh, their offspring. They have a common... Ta- and this is a destroy their offspring. That is what we were referring to when uh, 
when they would take their children they had and put them in the streets. Uh, it was a common practice back then. And uh, Christians were, were not doing that to their own children, and they were bringing, they were bringing those children into their own homes. <coughs> they have a common table, but not a common bed. Uh, so this is answering the, uh, that they are uh, sexually uh, uh, chaste and not immoral like the pagans are. They are in the flesh, but they do not live after the flesh. They pass their days on earth, but they are citizens of heaven. They obey the prescribed laws and at the same time surpass the laws by their lives. They love all men and are, pre- and are persecuted by all. They are unknown and condemned. Uh, they are put to death and restored to life. They are poor, yet make many rich. They are, la- they are in lack of all things, and yet abound in all. They are dishonored, and yet, they are very, and, and yet in their dis- very dishonor are glorified. They are evil spoken of, and yet are justified. They are reviled and blessed. They are insulted and repay the insult with honor. They do good, yet are punished as evildoers. When punished, they rejoice as if quickened into life. They are assailed by the Jews as foreigners and are persecuted by the Greeks. Yet those who hate them are unable to sign any reason for their hatred. That should reson- that resonates, right? right? In, all, in, in foreign lands, they're sojourners, but in their own land, they're also sojourners, right? Um, they love all, but they're hated by all. Uh, yeah, many more things. <clears throat> um, and then he goes on to describe how the Christians are to, are to act in the world. And, and he uses a metaphor of the soul and the body, that the, that the Christians are to be the soul of the world. To sum up all in one word, what the soul is in the body that are the Christians in the world. The soul is dispensed or dispersed through all the members of the body, and Christians are scattered through all the cities of the world. The soul dwells in the body, yet is not of the body, and Christians dwell in the world, yet are not of the world. The invisible soul is guarded by the visible body, and Christians are known indeed to be in the world, but their godliness remains invisible. The flesh hates the soul and wars against it, though itself suffering no injury because it is prevented from enjoying pleasures. The world also hates the Christians, though in no wise injured, because they abjure pleasures. The soul loves the flesh that hates it, and loves also the members. Christians likewise love those that hate them. The soul is imprisoned in the body, yet perseveres that very body, or preserves that very body. And Christians are confined, confined in the world as in a prison, yet they are the preservers of the world. The immortal soul dwells in a mortal tabernacle, and Christians dwell as sojourners in corruptible bodies, looking for an incorruptible dwelling in the heavens. The soul, when but ill-provided with food and drink, becomes better. In the, in the like manner, the Christians, though subjected day by day to punishment, increase the more in number. God has assigned them this illustrious position, which it were unlawful for them to, to forsake. God has assigned them this illustrious position, and it's unlawful for them to forsake it, right? This is... Uh, this is why uh, men like Polycarp and uh, Justin uh, would say that, it, you know, how could I forsake the one who has done me no wrong? Um, Justin said, one does not slip from, impiety, from piety to impiety when he was, when he was asked to recant Christianity. Uh, they, they saw their position as God's, uh, pl- God's placing upon their life, and they, they said, we cannot be anything other than what we are, right? Um, yeah, there's... 
I keep, I, in my mind, I keep wanting to reference someone we're going to talk about in a, in, in a little bit here, and I want to save that for when we talk about that. So uh, I'll, hopefully I'll remember to, to bring that up. And the question that we, we should have is, you know, for, for whatever our churches look like, okay, culturally or, you know, what, what our customs are or anything like that, do, do you desire the church that you are a part of to represent these ideas? Are these, are these to you, what, what it means to be a Christian in a, uh, or what, what the Christians look like? I think we can sometimes get in our mind things that are not as critical, right? Um, but we need to come back to the basics, and these are the basics. That faith in Christ creates a type of person that is very peculiar to the world and is hated by the world and yet loves the world, is crushed and killed in the world, <clears throat> and yet overcomes the world. Okay. Um, <clears throat> And, and the logical uh, progression of Mathetes' next point is, why are the Christians so peculiar? Why are they so different, right? What, 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 makes, what makes somebody not fear death? What makes them, though they are hated by all, love in return? And what makes them so different is because what has happened that has caused their birth to occur is something that has never happened before. And what has happened is that the eternal, immortal, holy, sinless Son of God has appeared to us and has changed us in an unmistakable way. That is why the Christians are so distinct, is because they have been revealed the Son of God, right? Um, this is uh, one of John's major arguments in First John, right? That this, the Word has come to us. We have seen Him. We have touched Him. We have heard what He said, right? Our eyes have laid upon Him. And what we've seen, we proclaim to you, the Word of life. And this Word of life will change you, Right? If you say you have no sin, you make him a liar. If you don't love your brother, the truth is not in you, right? If you are not like this, it means that, the, that if you are not like these things, it means that you have not seen the sun, right? So the source of the distinctiveness of the Christians is because the Christ has appeared to them. <clears throat> the reason why Christians are so different from other man-made systems is in, and religions is because they are not man-made. God himself has revealed and established this in the hearts of men. How did he do this? How did he establish this truth in the hearts of men? He did not, as one might have imagined, send to men any servant or angel or ruler or any one of those things who bear sway over earthly things or one of those to whom the government of things is in the heavens and has been entrusted. But he has sent the very creator 
and fashioner of all things. That's incredible, right? When we send somebody on a, on a job, right, when you send somebody to go do something, right, um, you tend to match uh, the, the task to the, not the importance of the person, but the, the ability of the person, right? Uh, you know, a king, when he has a message for his people, he sends what? Yeah, he sends a messenger. He sends a servant, right? Um, you know, to get a counsel with the king is, he's only going to listen to things that are very important. He is, his, time is, his time is very important, right? So you can't just walk in and talk to the king. Well, you can't walk in and talk to a human king who has limited time limited resources, limited abilities. But the king of all, who is not limited by anything, has a message for you, and he sent himself. He sent his son, the perfect image of the king, and he has come to us to reveal these things to us. It's incredible. It's incredible. <clears throat> and Christ... So, so, he, so he, is, he sends a unique person to come talk to us, and Christ comes in a unique way. So let's say a king decides to send his son. Okay? How is he going to send his son? Oh. With an army around him, legions of soldiers, with all the comforts you can imagine, and with announcers and... Everyone will hear. When my son comes into that town, everyone will hear, right? As a king sends his son, who is also a king, so he sent, so he, so he sent, so sent he him. As God, he sent him. As to men, he sent him. As a savior, he sent him. And as seeking to persuade, not to compel us. For violence has no place in the character of God. As calling us, he sent him. Not as vengefully pursuing us, as loving he, us he sent him, not as judging us, for he will yet send him to judge us, and who, has, who, sh and who shall endure his appearing. So he sent him in a way that was a compassionate, reaching out, humble way, right? Sent him into a manger, right? In a stable in Bethlehem. <clears throat> and not to war against the people, but to bring them to repentance. But do not think that he will not come to bring war at some point. He will, right? That's what he says. For he will yet send him in judgment. And who shall endure his second appearing? But his first one was one of love and joy and peace, right? <clears throat> And the proof of this is in the resilience of his disciples. The proof that they have seen the Christ is the fact that they, they fear no death. The fact that they teach these things when they're told not to teach them. The fact that they change their lives, right? Mar Justin Martyr said, you know, when we were pagans, we lived for the flesh. We did all these things. We did whatever we wanted to do, right? We lived like the pagans lived. And yet now we don't do those things anymore. What happened? We've changed, right? We've changed. And now, now we are different, and we don't do these things anymore. Um, so those, 
resiliency and, and obedience of the Christians is proof that the message is true. And that lays a weight on us, right? Someone looks at you and they look at your life, are they going to say, the gospel's true? They're going to look at your church and they're going to say, the gospel's true. Or are they going to be tempted to think something else? We, we, we have this burden, right, to be holy by the power of God, right, by the grace of God, to be spiritual, walking by the Spirit, right, uh, to not, not be normal, right, to not be, uh, to, to love our enemies, right, and do good to those who persecute us. Um, and in, the, in these things, we will sh- prove and show ourselves to be sons of the King. <clears throat> Why did God come? That's the next question he, a- he answers. Why did God come? Well, the answer is that mankind desperately needed God to come. But such declarations are simply the startling and erroneous utterances of deceivers. No, and no man has either seen him or made him known, but he has revealed himself, and he has manifested himself through faith, to which alone is given, and, uh, is given to behold God. So the, the erroneous utterances... Uh, these were, uh, he's probably responding to the Gnostics who thought that they, could, uh, that they could see the sparks of the reality in the world and that it was, uh, some, in some ways it was apparent. And what Diognetus or what uh, Mathetes is saying is uh, that, that mankind was, was lost, was blind and in a black, dark room. No, can't see anything, okay? And um, even if there are lights in the world, they can't see them. And until... God shines a light, right, and opens their eyes. So God has to reveal these things to us, and that shows us how desperately we needed God. And the question that he asks is, why did God wait so long? Right? I think that's an honest question. Why did God wait so long to reveal his son? Because God reveals himself all the time, right? But none has been so clearly revealed as his son, and then none has been so efficaciously revealed as his spirit inside of you, right? But why did God wait so long to do it? You know, if this is the truth, why did he wait so long? <clears throat> and Mathetes, or, uh, yeah, Mathetes says that it was to convince mankind of their need for God that God waited so long to reveal Christ, right? Uh, that the piling up of their sins would bring them to repentance. So that being convinced in that time of our unworthiness of attaining life through our own works, it should now, through the kindness of God, be vouchsafed to us, be given to us. And having made it manifest that in ourselves we were unable to enter into the kingdom of God, we might, through the power of God, be made able it might be proved to us that under our own power, we were not able to enter the kingdom of God. But now, through God's power, we are made able to enter the kingdom of God. This is Romans 3, right? The law and the prophets reveal God. Why did God give the law? Gave the law to show us how badly we need another way to be saved, right? Cannot keep the law. You must say 
I cannot do it and look to God for another way, right? And say, I cannot be holy. God commands you to be holy. And if you're holy, you'll live in his land and you'll experience the blessings of the land. And Israel says, we'll do it. And God says, you can't do it. And that, is, that should have been to them a sign of what the law was intended to do. The law was intended to show them how righteous God is and how unrighteous you are. But now, the righteousness of God has been revealed apart from the law and the prophets. Though the law and the prophets bear witness to it, the, law, the righteousness of God by faith in, in Jesus Christ. That's what Romans 3 says. So, Christ does what the law could not do because the law was weakened by the flesh. God, Christ, who became flesh, is made able to bring sinful flesh into the presence of God, into God's righteousness. That is what he's teaching us. He himself took on the burden of our iniquities. He gave his son as a ransom for us, the holy one for transgressions, the blameless one for the wicked, the righteous one for the unrighteous, the incorruptible one for the corruptible, the immortal one for them that are mortal. For what other thing was capable of covering our sins other than his righteousness? Having therefore convinced us in the former time that our nature was unable to attain life, and having now revealed the Savior who is able to save even those things which it was formerly impossible to save, by those these facts he desired to lead us to trust in his kindness, to esteem him our nourisher, faith, a father, teacher, counselor, healer, our wisdom, light, honor, glory, power, and life, so that we should not be anxious concerning clothing and food. So, you know. If he can save that which was that, that which used to be impossible to save, can he give you food? Can he clothe you? Yes. It's Christ's teaching in Sermon on the Mount. <clears throat> okay. At this point in the letter, what? Let's say you're let's say you're teaching this. What what would be the next thing you want to say? Let's recap. In former times, mankind was blind in a room with no light. And because of that, they were under the wrath of God. And God revealed himself to mankind through his law. But all that law did was show them how unlike God they are. And the law was not able to justify human flesh. So now we have a law that multiplies sin, even though it is good and righteous and perfect. The problem is, is that you and I are not good and righteous and perfect, right? He's before Christ. And where sin multiplies, wrath multiplies, right? So we're in trouble. Until... God decides to reveal himself another way. That way is through his son. Not just a messenger, not just a slave, not just a servant, nothing like that. He sends his son, his image, himself, who comes not to beat us into submission, but to compel us 
and to woo us, to take upon, to, to lay down our impossible to carry yoke and take upon his light yoke. What's the next thing I should say? This is where you need to preach. What? Turn to Christ. Amen. What is stopping you, Diognetus, from coming to Christ? And if you love Him, you will be an imitator of His kindness. And do not wonder that a man may become an imitator of God. He can if he's willing. There is a kingdom that is here, Diognetus. And you can be entered into it. And those that are in the kingdom are like God. And if you want to become like God, you can. Not because you're good, but because He has decided to make a way for you to become like God. So what's stopping you? This is an apologetic, right? This is a defense. This is a defense. This is a call to come to Christ. <clears throat> Matetes then establishes himself as a faithful witness, right? Passed down by the prophets and the, the apostles. For whatever things we are moved to utter by the will of the word commanding us, we communicate to you with pains and from a love of the things that have been revealed to us, right? Revealed to us. These guys are not creating new things. They are not interested in that. They are only interested in passing along what has been revealed to them. This is our call as pastors as well. Pass on the scriptures. The people that you will minister to by the grace of God do not need to have your words. They have plenty of their own words. Thank you very much. They need the word. They need the word. The one who allows, this is how he ends it, the seed of truth to sprout in them will bear fruit like the tree planted by the streams of water. Um, uh, Mathe, or, uh, your book, um, Haken, uh, in his chapter on the letter to Dinesus, offers two um, evidences for the truth of Christianity argued by Mathetes, the Christian community. The Christians love one another because God first loved them and showed that love through the sacrificial gift of his own beloved son. So this was going to be a powerful argument to Diognetus that he should become a Christian. is because the Christians love each other, right? And the second one is this. The author of the letter to Diognetus sees in the steadfastness of the martyrs nothing less than a proof for the truth of the martyr's testimony. The, love that, the, the kind of love the Christians had uh, was very peculiar to them. Uh, loving the poor, loving their enemies, um, loving, laying, laying down their lives for each other, sharing all things in common, giving, right? Um, these things were not, um, they, they hadn't seen a love like this, right? Um, and it was mirrored after the love of Christ, of course. Um, so, uh, but it's easy, to, it's easy to appreciate that, right? And, and I think what he's saying is, is that if you look at how different the Christians are, that they are loving each other, 
and they are joyful and content and happy, you can, you can say that something has happened to them. Something has happened to them because they used to be like us, and now they're not. Now they're vastly different. So the question is, is what has happened to them? The answer is Christ has happened to them. And then the same thing is, is, you know, normal people fear death. But these Christians are not afraid of death. Why? The answer is Christ. Um, I want you to imagine that you have someone that you have someone come to you or write you a letter and they say, can you please explain to me why you Christians are so different and why I should become a Christian? What are some things that you appreciated from the letter to Diognetus that you would like to use in your own letter to Diognetus? Uh, the question was, is let's say, let's say you're put in the position of Mathetes and, and a non-Christian writes a letter to you or, um, or you know, asks you, why are Christians so different? Why are, what, what is it with you guys? Why are you, why are you giving your money to the poor? Why, why are you doing these things, right? <clears throat> um, and, uh, and, and you are going to answer him. And I, the question is, is what would you take from the letter, to, the letter to Diognetus and use in your own context to argue uh, for Christianity or to try to compel them to become a Christian. Because this is what he's doing. He wants Diognetus to come. Yes. Um, uh, we should be ready to be judged, right, and be uh, ready to be examined by the world as per our differences uh, in our Christ-likeness. But we should also be ready to say, you know, we are not claiming to be Jesus. We are following after him. And when we sin, we forgive each other. When we, uh, when we err, we repent. And, uh, and it, doesn't ma- it doesn't mean that, you know, in, in, a, in the next week I won't make a mistake, but I'm going to turn from it. And, um, and humility and repentance are the signs. Uh, and, and many of the early church fathers wrote books on repentance. Um, for, for the Christians to read and understand. Yeah, and, uh, you know, as Christians, you know, it's just, it's just profoundly, it's just profoundly true that, <clears throat> that when we, um, that God will, when he saves us, when he saves a Christian out of a certain past, um, whether it be a, a certain kind of sin or a certain kind of situation, God will usually chisel a, a ministry for that person. I've seen it in our church a number of different times where they'll be effectively able to minister to people to bring them out of that lifestyle into, into Christ. So uh, Christians are uh, to be, um, it's, it's kind of a weird idea, but uh, to rejoice over the sinfulness that God has saved you out of, right? Like we sing how we are uh, broken and, and lowly, but God has, has saved us, right? Uh, so um, we, 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 we cannot let our pride get in the way of, of what we used to be um, or, or hide what we used to be. Um, we should be open with that and, uh, because it, it accentuates uh, how great the salvation was that came to us and how great the love of God is for us.